Hello and welcome to Public Affairs. This is an interview show broadcast by WRBH here in New Orleans. And we cover all sorts of topics that are relevant to us as a collective here in the city. So typically we welcome guests from the arts, academia, politics, history, literature, the nonprofit world, healthcare, hospitality, all that good stuff. And we just have conversations about events and issues that are, you know, concerns of the public at large. And I guess the goal is to build alliances and sort of um, activate community involvement. Um, I think uh, it was CJ Young who had a quote that said the collective unconscious was like we were all in a psychosis. So hopefully we can, you know, be less psychotic. (laughs) So today we have, uh, I'm joined by Wendy Rodrigue. She's an author, an art historian, an advocate, and the public figure behind the George Rodrigue Art Foundation. So welcome, Wendy. Thank you, Amy. And I am a huge fan, so I have to apologize to the audience because uh, I'm going to get a little tongue-tied already. Um, So I guess why don't we start off with kind of mentioning, why do you think art's a a public affair? Why is it relevant? Well, the immediate thing I think of is what George would say when he would visit schools. He would remind the students that every single thing in the room around them was touched at one time or another by an artist, from the clothes they're wearing to the roof over their heads, every single, the school books, everything in the room is affected by the arts in one way or another. And oftentimes we don't think of the arts as being so integral to everything that is around us in life. Like someone designed that light bulb shape. Exactly. Someone designed the colors on that. uh... Exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. Um, And I, I guess I was sort of thinking art sort of expresses maybe the inexpressible things about a people. It does. Well, art opens, of course, mystery Mm. and can be interpreted by everyone in different ways. That's the great thing about it. You know, um, art takes on a life of its own, for example, long after the artist is gone. What other people see in it is just as important as George's intent. Right. That record that you leave for the future generations. I feel like it also um, acts almost as like a golden mirror. So a lot of times you can't really see, you can't understand yourself until you almost see yourself reflected back. So it's that little mirror which with, with which we can see ourselves. I like that too. Yeah. So you actually uh, have a long background in art, right? You were an art history uh, major in college? Yeah, my mother was an artist, and she's oh, the one who encouraged okay. that direction. Um, I went to Trinity University in San Antonio. Everybody in my family who had gone to school previously went to LSU. But I really wanted to... I wanted to fly a bit. I wanted to go somewhere else and see something else. And so San Antonio, not that far off, but it was for me at that time. And I studied art history. But my area was uh, Northern Renaissance and the Minoan Mycenaean culture. It was certainly not contemporary art. Let me just tell you, you dodged a bullet because I went to LSU and it was, you know, not like. But um, there might, wait, the Minoans, weren't they uh, like by Egypt? Sea, sea, sea people? Yeah, the, in Greece, yeah, yeah, and Crete. and uh, Interesting. And, yeah, I was very taken because their gods were female, and I loved that too. <laughs> oh, Lord, okay. So, yeah, you really... <laughs> and then snake you, goddess and, and all. And then you also studied English, right? I did. I studied English literature and writing and um, majored in that as well, and... It turns out the two are very compatible. There's a lot right? of writing going on in our <laughs> history. I was about to so. say, it's like that interpretive, <laughs> really honing those interpretive skills. Yeah. So what were your career plans, you know, right when you finished school? Did you I knew I a plan or just kind of winging it? Yeah, I knew I wanted to go into the museum world. That's okay. what I really wanted. I had no intentions of going into a gallery business at all. And so um, 
that was kind of a surprise to me when it fell in my lap. And the reason that I went for the job at the Rodrigue Gallery, which I did, I started right here in New Orleans in 1991 on Royal Street across from where we are today, um, went walking in and was blown away by what I saw. It was my first exposure to George Rodrigue. And that is why I wanted it, was to be around his particular art the reason I had not wanted to do gallery work is because I thought, what if I don't like the art that's being represented? Um, I need mm-hmm. to be able to be authentic. So when you walked in, was it were you applying for the job or had you no. secured it yet? <laughs> no, I wasn't even aware that they were looking for oh, anyone. I actually okay. went there because a friend of a friend was running the gallery for George and um, he had offered to send me some places and, you know, tell me where I might be able to get a job in a museum. Was was the interview like rough? Do you remember it? Actually, it was not rough at all because he took me for the first time in my whole life to Mm -hmm. Antoine's and I had for the first time in my whole life um, Oysters Rockefeller. Okay. I'll never forget too because he offered me $21,000 a year and I nearly fell out. It was the most money I'd ever heard of in my life. (laughs) Big big city girl. (laughs) Um, All right, so... I guess from there, you started at the gallery, and now you sort of shifted. You're doing writing. Now you're almost just a, a public figure. You're really the face of the of his whole foundation, right? Well. Uh, you did a little foray into advocacy. Yeah. You explore. George and I did a lot of that in the last, um, I would say, at least five years or more of his life, really beginning with September 11th. Mm-hmm. 2001. So that would have been 12 years before he passed away. And then on to Hurricane Katrina, which everybody here is, I think, is familiar for the most part of all of the okay. uh, humanitarian, and well, obviously with Katrina, but also the humanitarian um, funds that and outreach that George and I both did um, following the storm. But the big thing is, um, after George passed away, I didn't know how to continue any of those things without him, without the star of the show. And I was in a dark place for a long time. I didn't think I would ever poke out of it. And when I did, the natural way to do it was in giving back. You know, that as we all know, you give back and it gives back to you a yeah. hundredfold. Give it away. Yes. And so actually, um, George and I established the George Rodriguez Foundation of the Arts back in 2009 and we're very involved in all of that. But I moved away from that. Um, George's son is the executive director there, and his goals really focus on um, arts integration in schools through things like um, Louisiana A-plus schools, which are arts integrated networks. Also, there's an annual statewide scholarship art contest and art supplies for schools. But my vision branched off different when I came back because I wanted to basically integrate George Rodrigue into schools and to use his life story and his artwork to inspire others, inspire them to follow their dreams, inspire them to make a difference in the world, all things that George Rodrigue did and did multiple times. He was very dedicated. Inspire them to maybe, if possible, retain some of that uh, childhood innocence, um, 
and kind of forge their own path. Yeah, and to remember that it's okay to do that, you Mm -hmm. know, to keep what is about you as a child that's so open and wonderful. And so as a result, I established a completely new foundation, the George Rodrigue Life and Legacy Foundation. Two foundations now. Yes, now there's two. And so that one is my main goal, and that is what brings me into schools. Um, Tomorrow will be my 70th school, in fact, and that will be Pontchartrain Elementary on the North Shore here. And I have now visited personally with more than 35,000 kids in four states. So it's been great. We're expanding into four more states this year. And, of course, we've also expanded into museums, community outreach. Um, but but basically um, showing people that art can be a vehicle mm-hmm. um, towards really personal empowerment in many ways, sure. um, being a better citizen in many ways helping others, making the world a better place. And so that's where my passion is. And I use original paintings to do it. I get really psyched about um, how people get excited. And, and, you know, our our conversations go in many different ways, not only the things we've talked about here, but also we talk a lot about illness. We talk a lot about loss and things that really aren't spoken about, um, not much in society and certainly not much with kids and in schools. See, that's my favorite, the things that go unspoken. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of, do you have any favorite genres of art or any favorite art pieces? Like, for example, my favorite is uh, I Love Magritte. Ah. Obviously, French, you know, psychoanalytic dream world. <laughs> is what, what appeals to you? Which I love Magritte also. Well, obviously, George Rodrigue is my favorite artist. Um, actually, I have a double favorite artist because mm-hmm. I am married today to Douglas Magnus, who was George's very close friend and is also an a exceptional artist, um, photography, painting, uh, stone carving wow. in the old-fashioned way. So oh, I watch all of that. Elemental. You know. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> this this meditative chink, 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 chink out on the patio in the summertime is really the greatest as he's carving the stone. And then um, he's best known as a silversmith. And that is how he and George became such good friends. They met in the mid-80s and mm-hmm. collaborated on a lot of projects together, many of them personal projects for me. So I've been very fortunate to have artists in my life. My mother was an incredibly talented artist, also a real favorite. What kind of art did she do? Oh, Magritte was one of her favorites. Very surreal. And in fact, um, my mother believed in angels and fairies and painted a lot of spirits. I love that too. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the greatest regrets of my life is that as a a young person, I poked fun at my mother for those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And she's not with us now. And I came around later in life about that too. No, yeah. I don't. And you want to tell you angels aren't real. That's don't right. Do it. My mother's one of those angels <laughs> and one of those fairies. It's true. So. They're always here with us. That partici- yeah. participation mystique, they say. Now, George, is a, it's great that you're taking his legacy into schools because he's been a really important person for these, you know, this place, these, you know, these people. Um, yeah. I was trying to think if there was any other visual artist who had sort of captured the spirit of, you know, maybe Southwest Louisiana as as well, you know, with as much respect and who's grown to as much prominence. I couldn't really think of anyone else. Maybe Clementine Hunter. Are there any others even? There's nobody, I don't think, yeah. on George's level that has done that. In fact, um, speaking of George's level, I mean, we get school projects from all over the world. Um, I've been sharing with people because I've been so blown away by it. In recent weeks, we've had 
whole school projects, whole school units devoted to George Rodriguez come in from Ghana, Bahrain, Korea, um, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and obviously all over the U.S. So he has truly studied worldwide, and he has studied alongside artists of the caliber and reputation of um, Matisse. Magritte, Chagall, you know, uh, Van Gogh, he really is in that caliber. And it's interesting because um, here we are in a contemporary time period, a contemporary world, but George is very much aligned with what we think of as the modern giants, the modernist giants. It's a little bit different. Um, Today, of course, there's so much installation art, Mm. obviously, and... um, well, you know, all kinds of things. The appropriation <laughs> art and then and then even going back a bit, you know, the abstract expressionism and all those things. And George, in fact, would have talked talked about himself often as an abstract artist because he looked at his paintings in that way, very much broken down into um, form, shape, design, color. Mm-hmm. But it's true that he used those things to, um, well, in the case of his Cajun paintings, preserve a slice of Louisiana that was fading away, he saw as fading away. Um, And then with the Blue Dog series, to comment on life today, ponder the future, and explore that mystery we were talking about. Now, I discovered, uh, I've got to take it back to when I discovered his series of Cajun paintings, which Mm -hmm. um, maybe a couple years ago that I discovered them, and it blew my mind because they had a profound effect on me. Um, I've just never never seen, uh, you know, like for example, the Aoli dinner. I'd never seen my people um, yeah. just looking so like regal, statuesque. Uh, it's just you know sad that I had never had an opportunity to see my own culture to look at it, you know, and see it reflected back to me. Like for example, um, I once read one of your blog posts where you kind of mentioned how in all of his paintings. Uh, with Piros, the Piros were always yeah. sitting on the ground. Mm-hmm. And when I read that blog post, all throughout my life, I'd always noticed that. You know, everyone that I knew who had a Piro, they never put it in the water. <laughs> like my whole life, I wondered why that was. And like when I saw his paintings and then when I saw that they were never in the water, I was like, okay, it was a thing. Someone else noticed that. It was just like really profound. I can't even describe it. It was a real big turning point. Oh, I love that. So, it's again speaks to you know what art I guess how important his legacy is to our our culture. Yeah, you know um, that reminds me. I didn't mark the Piro page. There's quite a few of them here um, for your listeners. I'm, I've brought a couple of things with me here in the studio for inspiration, and one of them is George's book, The Cajuns of George Rodrigue, which was published in 1976 by Oxmoor House, um, and. And when you were speaking, it made me think I'd like to read a couple of George's words, if that's all right. And this is about his school class. This was the one I thought about. I wish I thought about the Piro, and if I find it again, we'll bring that one up too. But this was a painting that I shared at Catholic High, which was George's High High School in New Iberia. (laughs) That's right. Back then it was a boys' school. Mm -hmm. and, um, And prior to it being called... Um, Catholic High, you know that it was St. Peter's College Mm -hmm. is what they called it. And when George first started there, that is indeed what it was. I was there just a few weeks ago, visited with the entire student body over a day and a half, 700 students, all in small classes. It was fabulous. And, you know, was trying to emphasize to them that George Rodriguez walked these halls 
George Rodriguez was inspired in this place mm-hmm. and trying to humanize him for mm-hmm. them. We talked about for things like, Should you know, when the science fair uh, picture, science <laughs> fair picture of George right there in their cafeteria. And of course, I had a big movie poster I brought in from the creature of the Black Lagoon from the Black Lagoon because that <laughs> premiered when he was there and he drew monster paintings on T-shirts, et cetera. But anyway, one of the paintings I brought was this painting called St. Peter's College, New Iberia. And... Well, rather than describe it to you, I'll just let George describe it to you. Go ahead, George. Take it He wrote, these boys standing on a plank walk above the halfway point on the canvas have a floating quality. They are in school, in a stage of movement. And perhaps this is what school is, a short movement of time. So I have these school friends grouped together with the teacher on the suspended plank, moving in time and in the swamps of Louisiana. Ooh, a lot of searching and examining there. Isn't that awesome? The, the whole theory. book is like this. Yeah. George was very proud of saying that he wrote this whole book in, in a day. <laughs> he painted all the paintings in about seven years. And um, I should mention, since we're talking about the Cajuns of George Rodriguez, this book, that it was actually um, the first book published nationally, first national publication on the Cajun culture. It was also the first bilingual book ever published in the United States. It was also (laughs) (laughs) chosen by the National Endowment of the Arts as their favorite book of 1976. They loved it so much that they shared it with First Lady Rosalind Carter, Mm -hmm. who along with her husband chose it as an official gift of state for the Carter White House. George now that, Rodriguez. Now that is so necessary because before that, all of our, I guess, the most prominent art that described us, you know, wasn't by us. Right. It was by, you know, Harvard professors. And Europeans. Or, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes. Yeah. Romanticizing us. That's right. So um, it's nuts that we finally got one of us, a real <laughs> new Iberia boy. I have a funny story along those lines, too. Um, one of the, the, stories that George quoted oftentimes as being a big turning point for him was he had a show in the late 70s in Boston, and it was obviously all these Cajun paintings, like the ones in the book and the ones we've been talking about. And Ted Kennedy introduced him at the opening reception, and it was packed with people. And Ted Kennedy introduced George as a Cayune artist. Now y'all see. There you go. Imagine having an identity <laughs> that people, uh, it's so marginal. It's on the margin of the margin. Uh, and it's do you a know, struggle, man. Yeah, and do you know every painting in the show sold? So here you had a room full of people, packed of people, who knew so little about the Cajun culture that they didn't even know how to say the word, and they bought every painting there. They'd never met a Cajun before mm-hmm. George, and George told him, t- said that the valuable lesson there was that it wasn't as much what he painted, but how he painted that appealed to people. And so they actually learned about the Cajun culture through being drawn to the style of his art. Yeah, I like the, uh, I love the woman he paints, too. Mm-hmm. All his Evangeline um, paintings are really great. It's weird because they actually, they do look like us. Yeah. Like the wide set eyes, the um, well, part of that is because he used a lot of you, a lot of Cajun (laughs) beauties like yourself, yes, as the models, yes. And then you were the Jolie Blanc, right? I was not the first Jolie Blonde. I was very honored to be painted by George many times as Jolie Blonde, and I have to admit that once we fell in love, I would have been a little bit hurt (laughs) if he went out looked for another model. Whoever uh, was that model did a really great (laughs) job portraying the Jolie Blanc because she was so proud. She was very, you know. 
Well, it's ironic because the very first Shirley Blonde that he did, which was in 1974 and is his most famous image of her, um, which is also in this book. For the audience, Shirley Blonde uh, is sort of a fictional sort of character in Cajun culture who's supposed to represent, maybe she's like our Becky. Mm-hmm. So she there represents um, a temptation, like a cross-cultural temptation. Oh, Blonde, yeah. maybe has material advantages. Yeah. All the and boys like her. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, of course, she left her lover for another. Because she could, right? That's right. And George made her up, this very first one. No model. No model? Yeah, he painted her in the middle of the night in about an hour. And he did it for himself and painted her very loose. She's painted much looser than his other Cajun paintings. She's kind of his Mona Lisa in a way. It's quite. Yeah, she's pretty pretty regal something. there. And I love yeah. how she's always so much, her dress and her um, accessories are always so much fancier than the, uh, the dark-haired Cajun beauties. <laughs> now, what can you tell me about one of my other favorite paintings of his is Doc Moses. Oh, Doc Moses, the Cajun trade tour. Real quick, real Mm -hmm. quick. Well, that one was actually on view during, um, some of you, your listeners may remember the Rodrigue show in 2008 at the New Orleans Museum of Art, the blockbuster show. And what I remember most about Doc Moses, which is um, a Cajun trade tour or healer um, with a a ring of salt around uh, the patient who has an earache. And Doc Moses has the fingers and the ears to heal the earache. And we had one negative comment from the whole show (laughs) at Noma. And it was about the Doc Moses painting. And a woman wrote a story about um, George Rodriguez being focused on voodoo, as is evidenced by that painting and how offended she was by that. Like people don't understand (laughs) what voodoo is because so much of it underlies our belief system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Our our ontology and whatnot. Um, But yeah, typically territories that would have like a little healing specialty where there's earaches, um... Warts, warts whatnot. was a big one. Um, and George had an aunt who could heal warts, but not yeah. across water. She could do it. In other words, she could do it even over the phone. But if you were calling her, you had to go on the same side of the bayou and call yeah. her from there. I wish we could bring back some of these traditional healing arts, you guys. They're great. <laughs> you couldn't uh, take payment for it. Right. It was, uh, That's right. Nowadays, we're all into this wellness world. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's maybe talk about some a couple of the books that you've um, written. Now, I did sort of mention the blog, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which was pivotal, pivotal for me when I, when I uh, <laughs> discovered it. It's Thank called you. Musings of an Artist's Wife. Um, and then you eventually took this blog into a collection of essays, right? A book called uh, The Other Side of the Painting. Correct. So what sort of uh, adjustments did you have to make to the original blog posts? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I tried to make it something that you could do one of two things with. You could either read it from start to finish, and hopefully it would have a comfortable flow, or you could pick it up anywhere and learn something that you want to know. For example, um, where did the blue dog come from? How did the Cajun paintings develop? What is the Ioli dinner that you mentioned all about, and who are the people in it? How did baby George become an artist? So it's a book that hopefully weaves weaves things, unlike the blog. The blog is rather choppy, but um, the book hopefully weaves it into a narrative while at the same time allowing you to, you know, find out those answers. Did you ever, was it kind of hard to put yourself out there for the book is kind of more personal? Um, It's interesting to say that because when I first started the blog, the Mm -hmm. reason I did it was because so many people were asking questions like the ones I was just why those pyros on the ground? Right. That's right. And so I was constantly writing people and constantly answering things. And then I said, you know what? 
this is ridiculous. I'm just mm-hmm. going to start a blog and put as much information as possible as I know about these particular subjects. So I started doing that, and it went on for a couple of months, and it was George. People were stopping him literally on the streets of New Orleans saying, hey, I just read the blog, your wife's blog, and I learned about this or that because at, at its peak, the blog had as many as 30,000 readers a month. I mean, yeah, it, was it was really, and I don't write as much now as I used to, but I just posted again last week, so I'm trying to get back into I'm it. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get back into it. But anyway, um, it was George who said, Wendy, I really think you should take a risk and write something more personal. And it was scary. And that first personal one that I did mm-hmm. um, was really scary to me. It was called... Um, a wolf inspires a wolf. My maiden name is Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. Mm-hmm. But I looked back into um, Virginia Woolf's. Um, Love her. Yeah, me too. Um, a room of one's own. Okay. And connected her search for her own personal meaning with my own in being the wife of a famous artist. And how did I discover and find my own identity, keep my own identity, find my identity, expand within that? Yeah, that's almost like the pivotal, uh, your task of life. So go gather around your scattered parts of your psyche and build up your identity, huh? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that, um, I don't know, that particular blog post, it shocked me because uh, it was the biggest readership I ever had right. exponentially. People went crazy over it. So I got riskier and started going more personal. And I found that people people want to connect with people. Yeah. That's really, really. See, I, I got to commend you because, you know, to even think your, your most personal stories that you hold most dear, you know, to think that the public's even worthy of that, it's a big, big feat. Uh, well, you know, that's what a painter does. <laughs> yeah. Any artist does when you think about it. I mean, if you're, if you're an effective artist, you're mm-hmm. basically filleting yourself out there on the canvas for the world to interpret <laughs> as they want. <laughs> trying, <laughs> so. trying to get there. It's a, it's a long road, huh? Um. So I guess you did it. You overcame it. You got a little more personal. Yeah. How did it feel after when you're finished? Like a, a wait? Well, for one thing, strangers were no longer strangers. Ooh, that's... <laughs> yeah. it all out, huh? Well, I remember reading the book, and I'm probably... Many of your readers, if not all of them, have read it because billions of people have probably read it, which is The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember that. There you go. And mm-hmm. I remember when I read that book, uh, one of the, obviously the whole message of um, compassion and that everyone suffers in those things. And one of the lines in there had to do with that everyone at one time or another, meaning in one life or another in Buddhist philosophy, um, has been our brother or sister thought a lot about that. Yeah. And I used to, when George and I were on book tour, I used to take that on as a personal experiment mm-hmm. sitting in airports because we sat in a lot of airports. And That's I watched the people walking by in the airports and I thought, these are my brothers and sisters. And I looked at them individually like that and I connected with these now people. see, it's interesting you say that because some of the traitor prayers, mm-hmm. uh, I can't, can't really say them on air, but they talk about being related Mm-hmm. to, I guess, who you're healing. And apparently that was a belief that came from the Native Americans from the area because they sort of um, viewed themselves as interconnected, related to everyone. And I've heard that's why the Cajuns will do things, you know, like uh, call their fifth cousin family, uh, uh-huh. uh, whereas the French people wouldn't necessarily do that because uh. they were just really into that whole 
they really did think everything was real, you know, they were related to everything, which makes sense, right? It does make sense. Really See does. all these connections? Yeah. <laughs> she, when she came it's into beautiful. the studio, she showed me a photo of George at Catholic High, and his science project was the Indian tribes. That's right. 1650. And he won the state with that. He was very excited. <laughs> In fact, this is the paper from the Daily Iberian. <laughs> That's the picture. Now, it's interesting whenever you say uh, we're all related. Um, I think one of the other great uh, functions of art is um, it can kind of clear up uh, asymmetrical narratives, almost kind of builds empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's good if we eventually kind of hold ourselves accountable for others' suffering. Yeah how we affect uh, the world, whatnot, all this mumbo-jumbo. You know, when I, t when I bring the art into schools, I tell the students, I have brought you the gift of slow art, <laughs> which is not a phrase I coined. It's a phrase I appropriated. Um, but it's a wonderful, a wonderful example of what I'm trying to do here. Um, and it opens those exact doors that you were just talking about oftentimes. Um, I do talk often about George's illness, his lung cancer, mm -hmm. and I talk about my fears and all of that and the fact that he wasn't afraid. When he did have fear, I saw him cry once. I saw George cry, cry one what? time in the I 21 years. Yeah, in the 21 <laughs> years we were together, I saw him cry once. You and you know it what it was? Well, it was in his, during his illness, and I thought he was crying because he was scared. He was crying for me because he was scared about what would happen to me. Wow. That was George Rodrigue. Wow. And the other thing, I tell this story often in school, so it took me a long time before I could get it out. And now that I share it, I share it regularly. And that is in the last few weeks of George's life, and I still thought he was going to make it. But I was afraid. And the cancer had entered his cerebral spinal fluid by that point. So his meninges had swelled and he had a hard time. He could formulate his ideas, but he had a hard time getting them out of his mouth and formulating the words. And so this one night, in the middle of the night, it was nice and quiet and I didn't expect him to answer, but I was afraid. And I said, George, are you scared? And time passed and he goes, no. And I lifted up my head and looked at his face and his eyes were big and bright and he goes, it's an adventure. Wow. Look <laughs> that at that was George. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I guess so when you bring the slow art into the classroom, you're kind of uh, teaching them how to, you know, look. There's looking and there's seeing, you know. Looking is maybe seeing with intention. It's more of an active process. Yeah. Um, like, I guess teaching them how to look at art. Yeah. You kind of have to, like, look at it kind of hold it there without a judgment and then sort of allow some time for you to like personally connect with it, you know, bring your own memories into it, right? Well, I like asking them, what does this mean? What do mm -hmm. you see here? And I love it when it dawns on them <laughs> that every one of them is correct. Right. All of their answers are absolutely correct and that what they see in it is just as important, as important as George's reasons for painting it. And so they get very excited about that, that art can be a very personal connection for them that can transport them. Yeah, uh, transformative, I guess you could say. Transformative. Possibilities, imagination. Yeah. Imagine if we couldn't uh, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> How uh, stationary the world might get, right? Yeah. All right. 
Well, I guess uh, I had so much more to talk about. Uh, the Flora the Flora Levy lecture series. Maybe we can uh, continue that conversation mm, later. But, I'd love to do that. Uh, I guess for now, that's our, that's our show. Thank you for coming, Wendy. Thank you, Anne. And thanks for listening to Public Affairs on WRBH 88.3 FM. Be sure to tune in every Monday at 3 and Sundays at 8 a.m. for more Public Affairs. And don't forget, you can also listen at WRBH.org, our SoundCloud archives, or you can subscribe right from the iTunes podcast app. Thank you, guys.